0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thank you very much for coming to this seminar. I'm really pleased I've been looking forward to this seminar all trimester. Um, I've been looking forward to seeing Paul as well. So Paul Hutchcroft, Professor of Political and Social Change at the ANU and is a Philippine specialist of great renown and also has the unusual experience of having worked on a number of Australian government governance projects in the Philippines and with those projects from out of Canberra as well. So he's got not just a wealth of academic experience in this field but also practical experience working with the embassy in Manila and also with DFAT back in Canberra. So really nobody better to ask about the election campaign That's just resulted in the return of the Marcoses to power, as well as Duterte, of course. Mm. So, Paul, over to you. Thank you very much, Ian. It's terrific to be back. We were having a chat earlier as to when I was last grip of giving a talk on the Philippines and it was before Ian had come to the ANU so we reckon it was like 2010-2011 probably at the beginning of the administration of Benigno Aquino Jr. third, who was president from 2010 to 2016 so I guess we're now two presidents on from that Duterte having been in power from 2016 until he steps down at the end of this month and then the victory very decisive landslide victory of Bongbong Marcos, the son of the conjugal dictators Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, the only son who went to a victory of landslide proportions. And I have to say, as someone who has been watching the Philippines for a long time, it was very much expected, based on the polls, that Bongbong would prevail. But also as someone who's watched the Philippines for a long time, first arrived in 1980, not long after I had graduated from my undergrad and that was where I cut my teeth politically in terms of getting involved in a lot of political matters and I watched the heroic struggle against the Marcos regime as it unfolded up until 1986. Even as it was expected, it still comes as a great personal shock. I was in Manila and Cebu at the time of the elections, and there are many other people who were shocked and despondent. There was a lot of people, but clearly not a majority of the population, because as I'm going to show, the numbers were extraordinary in terms of the victory of Ferdinand Marcos Jr. So I'm going to start with the big picture, then just give a little bit of sense of how elections are held in terms of the rules. There's some distinctive elements of the electoral rules in the Philippines. And then the bulk of the talk tries to explain the Marcos landslide. And to do this, there's been a lot of commentary on this sort of pulling different factors. I'm trying to be as comprehensive as possible and looking at it from long-term, medium-term, and short-term factors that help us to understand all of this. And then as much as I can at the end, speculate on what we might expect from a Marcos presidency. But it's very difficult to speculate because he ran a campaign without any substantive policy discussion to speak of and at the same time avoided campaign debates. So, just an overview of the election. This I'll go through very, very quickly. I want to note that 56% of registered voters are between the ages of 18 to 41, meaning they have very little personal recollection of the Marcos regime. About 18,000 posts in total, and half the Senate, all the members of the House of Representatives, governors and mayors throughout the country, and then the numbers really balloon in terms of the number of councillors at the local level, leading to that number of 18,000. But my focus today is going to be on the presidential-vice presidential election, and the one with all the lits, of course, and that prevailed is Bongbong Marcos and Sarah Duterte, both children of former presidents. And then the other people I'd highlight at the outset are Lenny Rubredo, the current vice president, running with a senator, Kiko And The most important thing to note about Kiko is that he's the husband of a movie star. So that's how everybody kind of knows him. And then who's this? Manny Pacquiao. Like Manny Pacquiao, the world famous boxer, pound for pound, said to be one of the greatest boxers in the world. And then some other minor candidates that I won't be focusing on for lack of time. But if we look at the polling data from the time that the tickets first started to get in place, Bongbong Marcos was achieving majority. No one has ever achieved majority before in the post-86 election in the polls. So he moved around a little bit. but stayed very strong. It's at this point that Lynn Rubredo looked like she might finally be building up some momentum, but on the 2nd of May when that last polling figure came through, that was a sign to me that the momentum is not there and that this race is going to be, I thought 55-29 was my guess, it ended up being more like 59-28. Marcos won in 64 of 81 provinces. He lost in Lenin Rubredo's home region. He lost in an area that is known for very strong support for the Liberal Party. He lost in some places that have significant support for the Communist-affiliated National Democratic Front. But the overall thing is that he won big everywhere in all jurisdictions among overseas voters throughout the world, except for Australia and the Vatican. Sarah Duterte... Something I'm going to explain in a bit. Presidents and vice presidents run separately. She came up with an even larger percentage, 61.5% of the vote. So that's just the big overview of the outcome of the election. Now I want to say just a few things about the particularities of how elections work in the Philippines. The three most salient features, first of all, one that I've already mentioned, president and vice president are elected separately. This is a very rare system internationally. I think you can find it In Texas, say no more, it's really not found in many places and opens up the possibility, frequently realized, that the top two officials of the land will be from separate parties. So there's a lot of tension naturally between Rodrigo Duterte, the president, and his vice president, Lenny Robredo. And then there's only been one previous instance where a president and vice president come together back in 2004. The second major thing I'd like to highlight is that victory comes from mere plurality. You don't need to have a majority. And the 1992 election is exhibit A in this regard, because Fidel Ramos, who went on to be a very influential president, actually won with only 23.6% of the vote. And interestingly, other candidates at the time included two from the Marcos camp, both Amelda Marcos, as well as a leading crony, uh, Danding Kowanco. And if you put their percentages together, they would have had more than Fidel Ramos. So this highlights the important role in a system that is a bit of a free-for-all of informal brokerage to try to bring people together to minimize competition among those who are in similar camps. That didn't happen in 1992, but I'm going to say one of the critical things that determined this election was the machinations, the... Twists and turns back in late 2021 that the Marcoses and Duterte's ended up not fighting against each other but cooperating, and I'll go through that whole story. Very incredible dynamics that took place in late 2021. So what does this matter? Knowing that you might win with just a small plurality, it encourages lots of people to pile in. Maybe I can get 24%, and maybe I can win with just 24%. It's not a calculus that, oh, eventually I need to get 50%. So it leads to many different candidates coming in, and of course we can contrast this with a two-round system as found in Indonesia and France, and we've seen recently the French election going into a second round. Third, presidents are limited to a single term. Now, this discourages incumbents from investing in the task of party building. And as my colleague in a couple of ARC projects, Alan Hicken of the University of Michigan, highlights, Term limits, particularly those pertaining to the presidency, have contributed to less party discipline, more factionalism, and a large number of short-lived parties. And this is evident if we look across the elections post-1986, which there's very little continuity from one election to another in terms of the parties that are putting up candidates. 18 parties or coalitions of parties across those five Elections, So it's a bit like Korea in that there's a dizzying number of parties that one can find, but very different than South Korea, which has very clear ideological divides. So you have the progressive camp and the conservative camp and there's considerable continuity. Think of having a system with tons of parties and no ideological coherence whatsoever and that's the Philippines and that's why a lot of this turns out to be such a free for all. So the key point through all this is that structures of electoral competition are very weak and do not lead to the kind of predictability in the basic dynamics of the race as compared to places with stronger political parties so families should be not parties remain the basic unit of political contention and with all of this lack of ideological cohesion, lack of attention to programmatic or policy bases personalistic politics is very important and this shifts a great deal, yesterday's allies may be today's rivals, yesterday's rivals can be today's allies former President Estrada and Arroyo didn't get along very well because he was boosted out of power and she became president back in 2001, he ended up in jail she pardoned him but the long and short of it is that by 2022 and even earlier under Duterte they were on the same side again so all of these twists and turns are very important it's not to say that the possibilities are endless across Philippine politics to quote Benedict Anderson we can see it as a sort of kaleidoscope of oligarchic power that is always shifting in the Philippines but it's not like someone who is from the Marcos camp is likely to come over and be in the Aquino camp so there are some basic sides of the spectrum but within each spectrum just lots of moving around and election results are commonly assessed not on which party does well but which families are doing well and that was certainly the case again in 2022. So that is just sort of foundation for the rest of what I want to do today. And I next want to look at some longer term factors that help us to understand the Marcos landslide victory. This is, of course, February of 1986 when the Marcoses have their last address. They couldn't even manage to have a rally outside of the presidential palace because they were so hunkered down there waiting for that helicopter to come to take them to Hawaii. This is the young Bongbong Marcos here on the right. And, of course, Ferdinand, who was in ill health at the time, and Imelda looking more than just a little bit worried. So I've highlighted five factors. One is just the extraordinary ability of the Marcos family to evade criminal prosecution and or jail sentences for plunder and human rights abuses and the like. There was in 2018 a conviction of Amelda Marcos, but given the nature of the Philippine judicial system and what a set of good <coughs> lawyers can do to block things, she never had any real fear of ending up in jail. And there's a number of other cases. There's been a major quantity of funds that has been available to human rights abuses that comes out of a U.S. court <coughs> hearing. After the the downfall of Marcos in 1986. There was some talk of banning the family from politics. That didn't happen. We consider that an enabling factor that they were able to get back into politics. They were first at the provincial level, governor and congressperson, and eventually senator, both Bongbong Marcos and his sister, Aimee. They were able to have just concerted efforts to rehabilitate the family name, and because of the porosity of the Department of Education, kind of get in to the system and get the textbooks to speak very favorably of the Marcos regime, which is quite shocking, given how many anti-Marcos secretaries of education there were along the way, but somehow they managed to do that. Remember, we were in the Ilocos, the Marcos territory back in 2004 elections, and through some work connections of my wife, we were with some very, very nice people, I will say, who were close to the Marcos regime, and they loaded us up with all kinds of material, including a huge book, you know, Let the Truth Be Told, about, in their view, all the lies about the Marcos regime, cassette tapes of the speeches of Marcos, and well, for me, it was all kind of a joke at the time, you know, the Marcoses, they're never going to rehabilitate themselves. But they did very clearly, and social media from about 2013, 2014 is what really allowed them to start this process of rehabilitation. Then there's just the whole failure of Post 86, 1986 governments to develop truth-telling mechanisms, leading over time to what I call—actually, my son developed this term—I give credit where credit is due—authoritarian amnesia. I don't—I think it's as much amnesia as it is authoritarian nostalgia. But that nostalgia was certainly manufactured in a major way through social media. And then, of course, this is a very important thing, the disappointments with post-1986 governments running from '86 to 2016 to address major deficiencies of governance. There were reductions in poverty, some that were very clearly coming forth in the Aquino years. But just not nearly as fast as they might be, and the Philippines started to look weak in economic performance even relative to Vietnam and Indonesia, which is very different than historical patterns, where the Philippines, of course, was one of the leading economies in Southeast Asia. So this is very important to highlight, but also want to say that not all governments between 86 and 2016 were of the anti-Marcos variety. I mean, it, we had nine years under Gloria Arroyo, who has become an ally of the Marcoses, and Joseph Estrada, whom I mentioned before. So there's many periods in which it's not just the blame going to the anti-Marcos forces. So then I want to look at some medium-term factors in a bit more detail, and this highlights a point I was making earlier. That's just the power of social media. And this is Rappler, started up by Maria Ressa, recently got the Nobel Prize, writing all the way back in 2019 about the way the Marxists are using social media to try to reclaim Mulligan Young. I don't think many people really would have thought they'd succeed in 2019, but that's where we are. And the Philippines is known for having a very high internet usage. This is a slide from Ronnie Holmes of Pulse Asia that he shared with me. So the Philippines in this survey second in the world in terms of the number of hours that people spend on the internet. The next couple of factors is just how wise the Marcoses were in investing in Rodrigo Duterte back in 2016. And that yielded major payoffs. They seem to have offered very substantial support, both funds. Duterte didn't have that much money. He really depended on outside support for his campaign. And just as importantly, the Marcos social media effort that had been going strong since around 2013-2014 is said to have been the foundation for the Duterte administration's social media effort in that campaign, which was really critical in building up a strong sense of momentum. Marcos then repaid this debt First of all, allowing Ferdinand Marcos to be buried in the National Hero Cemetery, visits to the palace, and then there was one point he went after an oligarch and his whole company's stock went down like this, and who was there to pick it up? The son-in-law of Marcos. I don't know whether that's part of a repayment or just good luck, but the Marcoses did very well, anyway, in rehabilitating themselves. They don't really need the money, so probably not a big factor. They need the rehabilitation. So just to show you who's in this picture, of course, Amelda, this is Aimee Marcos, the senator, the elder sister of Bong Bong Marcos. And if I'm not mistaken, that's their son, well, somebody's son. I don't know if it's Aimee's or Bong Bong's son, both of whom are in politics. I think that is Aimee's son. A couple other factors in this medium term category. Duterte was going after the yellow opposition that associated with the Liberal Party of his predecessor, Benigno Aquino, and nobody got the brunt of that worse than Senator Lila de Lima, who was put in jail on trumped-up drug charges, and the case never moved, and she's been sitting in the national police headquarters for five years since then. It's quite remarkable that you can take a national senator and just plop them in jail, and there's no recourse for her, even though she's former Secretary of Justice, which is actually very very relevant, because when she was Secretary of Justice, she was looking at Mayor Duterte's so-called drug war and all of the killings in Davao. So he had it out for her and stuck her in the slammer. Then there is the drug war. This is an early tabloid that came out of the palace itself. Duterte is winning in the war of drugs. Of course, he said he was going to fix it in six months. Uh, Now he's sort of acknowledged that was a bit of campaign bluster, and it's a much more complicated problem than that. And then giving pay rises to the military and the police and courting their support, particularly at the rank and file level, very importantly. All of that boosted popular support for authoritarian measures. So there came to be a kind of acceptance and even popularity of some of these authoritarian measures. So he really pulled down the drapes of the democratic artifice that had been there in the Philippines for a long time and quite unapologetically built up this regime of electoral authoritarianism. Much more I could say about Duterte, but this isn't a talk about Duterte, so it's more about the way that Duterte helped pave the way for the Marcoses with his attacks on the Liberal Party opposition and building support for authoritarian measures. So that leads us into what is the most extended part of my talk, and that's to look at more proximate factors in explaining the Marcos landslide from late 2021 to present. And I should tell you at the outset that there's a lot of stories of familial dynamics, a lot of idiosyncratic factors in here, which in a personalistic polity are very important to take seriously. A structuralist will only get so far in the Philippines, as important as that is. I'm certainly keen on careful examination of structures as well, but there's a lot of just plain personalistic factors that are critical in understanding political outcomes. So everything that I've said so far, I think we should put in the category of necessary but not sufficient. All of those long-term factors, all of those medium-term factors, did not predetermine a Marcos victory in May of 2022. There were some other things that are far more important in the short term. And ultimately, it was critical, in a system in which there's no clear party lines, for somebody to broker bringing the Marcoses and Dutertes Together, So they wouldn't be fighting against each other, but would rather combine in the same ticket. Now, how did that happen? A deal was brokered, but we really don't know the details. I was giving a YouTube interview to a leading commentator in the Philippines after the elections, and I was going with the standard narrative that Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, who was president from 2001 to 2010, had played the key role. And a former student got in touch with me afterwards and said, you know, that was a good talk, but I think you gave too much credit to Gloria. The really important person in brokering all this was, Ivy mean Marcos, who came to Davao at the end of August, just as Sarah was up to here with her fathers trying to put her into certain slots, which I'll get to in a minute. So we don't really know who... Brokered the deal, but I think we can say that these two are very important. And the background story: I said we're going to get into personalistic factors. Is a family spat between father and daughter, between Rodrigo Duterte as president and his daughter Sarah Duterte, the mayor of Davao City. So his, his apparent strategy of the president: he wanted to influence who is going to be his successor, in particular because. He doesn't want to be prosecuted in the International Criminal Court. He's got a ton of blood on his hands. I would say the official figure is about 5,000 people killed in the drug war, largely urban poor, extrajudicial killings, no due process except knocking on the door and accusing people of being drug dealers, an official narrative that they fought back, sorry, we need to kill them, right? So... Official figures of 5,000 and leading human (coughs) rights organizations and figures would put it at 30,000 and above. And that was even when I was talking to people in early 2020. So all the more by now. So he wanted to have a top role for his daughter, Davao Mayor Duterte Carpio, known in a wonderful Philippine play on word as Dauterte, as well as his trusted consigliere the special assistant to the president who he supported to become president in the 2019 elections, Christopher Bongo. And here they all are together in 2017 in happier times doing the fist bump in a trip to Moscow. So that's the apparent strategy. Things did not go well for Rodrigo Duterte in this, and that's a whole broader story that I could say more about, but I just want to give the basic foundations. Intrafamilial tensions that were out in the open by August of 2021, so here they are in Japan together, and the relationship really cools. So all this went public by last August. It was just not very good timing for a family spat. Sarah meets with her father and says, that was not pleasant. Sort of just puts it right out there. And she said, the president's trying to push me in two directions, either to be president and then have Bongo as my vice, or have Bongo as president and have me run for vice. I wish they would own up publicly to what they're doing, And then, as real zingers, went on to say, I respectably advise them to stop talking about me and make me the reason for them running or not running. And then she lambasted the very weak ruling party as nothing but a sitcom. I refuse to be a political punching bag for a party in complete disarray. We don't know the full dynamics of what's going on in the Duterte family. You'd need to be a fly on the wall in the Duterte home in Davao. But it has something to do with Rodrigo Duterte splitting up with the mother of... Sarah Duterte, when she had cancer some years ago. And this is his current partner, Hanilat Avancenya, who's very close to Bongo, but not apparently close ties with the first family. So say no more. I really don't know the full details on this, but let's just keep that. The father and daughter are not getting along very well at all. But then, as so often happens with family disputes, a third party gets involved, and that is this courtship of the Marcoses for sarah to come on over be with us bong bong says i will run at the top or one of the brokers will say and why don't you run under me as vice president so this is some courtship meetings and then they were sponsors at a wedding in november in cavite and that's when the whole deal was sealed that bong bong would run as president and sarah would agree to be the vice presidential candidate Then the father goes ballistic, basically, and launches a thinly veiled tirade against the man who had stolen his daughter away. Without naming names, he attacks someone who was the son of a former president, who was a weak leader, the spoiled child-only son, and he's a cocaine addict, okay? So he just really kind of made people think... Now, you've had this drug war for a while. Uh, If you know he's a cocaine addict, how come you go after the urban poor and not after sons of former presidents? But people kind of never expected that to happen anyway. So then he said in an interview, rhetorically, speaking about his daughter, why do you settle for president when you're head of the pack? Why did you do this? And then he went on and accused both Marcos as well as his arch rival Lenny Rubredo being pro-communist. So he kind of lost it, frankly, in terms of how he handled all of this. So the outcome is, for the first time, the incumbent president has no so-called anointed candidate. The supremo doesn't look very supreme, but I will quickly add, he remains very popular. It's not like his popularity ratings plummeted. They were still very strong in December, and his daughter had moved into alliance with the Marxists. So, that is the overall picture of the family dynamics, and it took some effort to go into all that, but I hope you appreciate just how those dynamics can't be ignored in terms of understanding this outcome. The Marcoses and the Tertes are not fighting against each other. She agrees to take second spot, and then Bong Bong is at the top. This had mutual benefits for the two of them. As Marcos's ratings go from 15% to 53% in the course of three months, and sarah who had actually gotten more support than bong bong in september 2021 in polls for possible presidents is up at 45% as a possible vice presidential candidate of course she just kept climbing and surpassed him as well so it's my second short term factor. The first is all that family stuff. The second is once they got together, how they really started moving up. Then there's just the wealth of bailiwicks. This is old fashioned politics, it's a seemingly unbeatable combination of bailiwicks with the Marquises themselves in the north, the Dutertes in Mindanao, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, the former president, here and here, with her strong foundation in Pampanga, north of a vote rich province north of Manila, the Estradas in Manila. Who had both of his sons win places in the Senate? The Garcias of Cebu, Cebu being the most vote rich province in the country, they went with Marcos, and I'll say a bit more about Cebu in a bit. And then the relatives in the eastern Visayas, the Romualdes, this is the Melde side of the family, all of them supported the Marcos Duterte tandem. And here we have a picture of just note of Sarah and Aimee Marcos getting on their motorcycles, right? And I don't know what the female equivalent of bromance is, but this is what's going on between these two. They're very close. So think about how Sarah is just getting really upset by the end of August, and then Aimee comes along, and they're good friends already. Come on, why don't you, why don't you, this is what we might presume, why don't you just run for president under my brother? You're young, You'll have a chance to be president later. She just turned 44, so she's going to be only 50 years old. Just come along, and that's what happened. And so we have this wealth of bailiwicks that's come together. Additional factors, guess what? The Marxists have a lot of money. And they don't need to go to the conglomerates for support. Conglomerates thought, thought that this was a really cheap election because they didn't need to support the Marqueses and they didn't want to bother with the others that were getting no more than 24% tops. They also were feeding patronage machines around the country, reportedly. So when I was in Cebu... Reports, rumors, everyone emphasizes the rumors, people can't really judge by the money flows, but substantial funds coming in for the local families that had brought their support over to Marcos. And in the end, Cebu, a former Marcos stronghold, had results that were virtually the same as the rest of the country. So this was a very important victory for the Marcoses. Then this is old-fashioned politics, the bandwagon of local politicians who always want to move over to be with the winning side. And then a well-tuned social media effort, picking up on my point before, that really won over a lot of voters. And it seems to be especially important for young voters. And Pulse Asia registered a very strong surge of support of young voters aged 18 to 21 between March and April. Like 15% decline for Lenny, 15% rise for Marcos, which suggests, unfortunately, we don't have further polling data on this, but it suggests that the social media effort targeted at the Young was very effective. There's two elements of the social media effort. One was to project a golden era of the Marcos years, forgetting that the 1980s was a lost decade and the Philippines went through a huge balance of payments crisis, but also appealing to a new generation. And here is the son of Bong Bong, and the two of them just have these chats, so you can see them on YouTube, you know, like, how many girlfriends have you had? You know, what do you want when, you know, uh, what, what attributes do you want in your future wife? I want her to be just like mommy. And then just, you know, completely vapid chit-chats that for whatever reason seem to be quite effective in terms of giving a sense that the Marcoses are just regular folks and of course mommy melda comes into the story that's the grandmother of sandro and i remember when she brought me chocolates when i was young blah 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 right so all of this chit chat on social media youtube etc TikTok's is very important too there's a good article on the social media effort in the washington post in april by a correspondent by the name of Regine Cabato, and she quotes my former colleague at the university of wisconsin Alfred W. McCoy, you know, major scholar of Philippine politics who has chronicled the ravages of the human rights abuses under Marcos and the economic devastation and all that sort of thing. So it was a good quote from Al McCoy. And then she proceeds in the next paragraph to say, ah, but the opinion of experts, they can be no match for 30 seconds of TikTok, and she talks about this video that has 50,000 hits with a toddler saying, bring back Marcos, bring back Marcos, and then the comment saying, don't worry, baby, we're going to bring back Marcos. So forget the experts, right? In this age of TikTok, this is what really sways a lot of people. And then the last little bit here, looking at short-term is just to give a little bit of analysis, very brief, of the Robredo campaign which really brought out extraordinary fervor. I mean, this was something that really shocked people, just how enthusiastic the crowds came out in support of Lenny and against Marcos. But it seems to have been the enthusiasm of probably no more than 25-30% of the population in the end. This is in Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo's home province of Pampanga. You wouldn't expect her to be doing that well, but you know, huge rallies, just shocking people how big that they came to be and all this was combined with weak organization and she got a late start, so she had all this volunteerism but it wasn't very well coordinated, able to counter the appeals of the other side as one leading commentator, a sociologist, said, consistency in messaging was not the major strength of the campaign. They would get a lot of volunteer support, but sometimes they'd get money from business people to run ads, but it wouldn't be cleared centrally. These business people would just be running their own messages. So high in terms of fervor, low in terms of organization and coordination. And then let's go back to GMA, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, and how she played IME. We don't know. Someone playing this very important brokering effort in late 2021. There wasn't an effective brokering effort on the other side to bring all these other candidates together. So if Manny Pacquiao had been persuaded early on to come over to Lenny, and they have close relations, that could have built a stronger sense of momentum. But there was no such brokerage going on. And finally, Lenny was just unable to project an image, able to broaden the base of her campaign. First of all, we need to note that she was just hammered by vitriol for six years on social media. She came in quite strong. She beat Bongbong Marcos in the vice presidential race in 2016. She'd spent her career actually representing the downtrodden of the Philippines. But then she got off to a bad start with motor cars, of middle class that came to project an image of the campaign as being dominated by the well-to-do. So strangely, we have the son of a kleptocrat who is benefiting from a kind of revenge of the masses spirit among people they're tired of being preached at by the yellow forces and by the pink forces of Lenny so you know the Lenny people will say well, look at our rallies these people are not being paid and then people say we need to be paid don't give us any grief for going to rallies and getting some money and on down the line you know people who I've spoken with who were really kind of down deep in market areas trying to sway them over to Lenny said there's just a real sense of resentment against the sort of sanctimony spirit on the other side so that is our short-term factors and then what might we expect from a marcos presidency short answer we don't know as adele webb has said in lowey website it was a policy free campaign in which marcos avoided debates now here we have lenny we have Manny pacquiao we have some of the other candidates here the mayor of manila etc bong bong is not there didn't need to he said oh, it's just too divisive for people to be debating each other You know, I'm all for unity and then we have the cabinet members that have come through so far so we have some inkling of some of the potential directions and I first of all point out that these three here in the economic posts are highly respected economists so that's one element that we have and similarly in some other posts as well but Sarah Duterte not very wisely I think showed her cards earlier on and said, I'd like to be Secretary of National Defense. Bongbong didn't give her National Defense. You think she might also like to be Secretary of Interior and Local Government, because they control the police, and she's been a former mayor and all that. She didn't get that one either. She got stuck with education at a time of unprecedented crisis in the Philippine education sphere. The biggest bureaucracy in the Philippines, it would be very difficult to turn it around. In my view, some people would view it differently, but I think it's just a poison chalice that Bong, Bong has given her that slot. So, as one economist says, hard to find a better group of managers than those three I showed you from the middle. They're all professionals, they're not politically ambitious, but really, Bong, Bong is borrowing a page from his father's playbook, which is, you know, there's the technocrats, and they projected an image of developmentalism to the world, and then there were the cronies. So Solita Monzo says... Okay, We had great economic expertise under Marcos, but it didn't prevent the cronyism and the country being the basket case of Asia. So that's the formal cabinet post. But just as important is to look at the personal relationships in the palace. And there's three very important women in Bong's life. First of all, his mother, of course, who is 92. The actuarial tables would suggest she's not going to be around forever, but she has some influence as long as she's around. Then is the sister. Aimi mean, is a much more diligent, smarter politician with many more achievements. But I think it's a patriarchy of the mother, of the matriarch, actually, that she chose the son over the far more qualified daughter. But the daughter will likely want to have some influence. And then there's the wife, Lisa Araneta Marcos, coming from not the richest side of a major family. She's a lawyer, and we don't know much about what kind of influence she'll have, but she seems to be quite ambitious. And my vote just on the principle of pillow talk is that she's going to end up being more influential than the sister, the mother, as long as she's around, can have some influence as well. And then, interesting question to ask, just looking beyond the family, to whom does Bong, Bong Marcos have a debt of gratitude? To whom does he owe as a result? And I think that it's really a very small group. First of all, it might be... Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, given the role that she's played in the past. So this is her. Both visited her on her birthday, sort of, you know, paying respects to her in April. She's having a transcendental moment there, clearly getting a kiss from Amelda. Then there is Sarah, but, you know, she's not been very well repaid so far. I just kind of wonder, what does Rodrigo Duterte think, you know? What? They gave her education? You know, I told you so. Again, I'm not a fly on the wall of the Duterte home. And then there are local politicians, including Gwen Garcia of Cebu, who really delivered big time in the provinces. And in terms of foreign policy, it's worth noting that the campaign incurred no debt to China. Foreign roles can be important in close races, but a 31-point margin, they don't owe anything to China. But Marcos has had good relations with the local embassy. We just don't know what the foreign policy is going to be. And as Ian and I were discussing earlier, there's two key appointments that haven't been made yet, one in foreign affairs and then in national defense. And it's at that point that we might get a better sense of where this administration might be going in terms of foreign policy. My wife jokingly says that maybe there will be a pivot to Australia because the son of Marcos is studying in Melbourne. So maybe there will be a very, just joking, some kind of Australian influence and all this. But we don't know how he's gonna play the geopolitics. Just to put this in larger perspective, the Philippines has had a lot of political ups and downs through the years, but it was only in 2016 with the election of Rodrigo Duterte that Philippine domestic politics had major geopolitical consequences. We don't yet know what those geopolitical consequences might be out of the 2022 election. So that's it. Sorry if I went a bit long, but lots of different things to try to understand the extraordinary victory of Marcos and even more of a challenge to try to speculate on what might be ahead under a Marcos presidency. So thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.